Thank you for downloading this sermon brought to you by the preaching ministry of Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas, Nevada, Dr. David Tice. For more sermons in both audio and video format, we encourage you to visit experienceliberty.com. Also, for a word of encouragement, insight, and biblical inspiration, follow Pastor David Tice's blog at davidtice.com. So without further ado, let's open our hearts to the Word of God. Well, as you find your seat, give three people a fist bump beside you and say, glad you made it to church today. Just give three of them around. Hey, I'm glad you're in church. Good, a fist bump. That's what we're looking for. Man, I enjoyed the music this morning. You know what I'm looking forward to is next week. Next week, we will have our choir back. They took the last few weeks off for a little summer break, but they will be singing in choir next week. And I'm so thankful that God's going to give us uh, them back here as we get through uh, this summertime. I'm so glad you made it. I read today that we have gone through the last two weeks the hottest 14 days on record here in the city of Las Vegas. And I just want to congratulate you. You made it through the hottest 14 days. None of you melted. None of you, um, you're, you're in church. That's fantastic. You love the Lord and you're here doing good things. So I'm glad that you made it to church today. The hottest 14 days on record. I think it's going to cool down. I heard that tomorrow it's supposed to be like 101. <laughs> so get those hoodies out because tomorrow's going to cool off a little bit. If you got your Bibles, open them up to the psalm. Psalm 73 today, and today we are looking at the study that we've continued throughout the summer, looking at the songs of summer and taking this book, the book of Psalms, which is a songbook that was uh, reserved for us, was collated for us, and given to us by God's people, passed down from generations, several different authors that would be uh, writing the book of Psalms under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. We started in Psalm 1 several weeks ago, and today we're going to be in Psalm 73. And in this psalm, Psalm 73, we'll notice there is a change from where we've been over the last few weeks. All of the psalms that we've studied thus far have come from the pen of David, the great, mighty, noble King David, the one who stood toe-to-toe with a giant, the one who vanquished Saul in his tyranny, the one who set up Jerusalem and brought the Ark of God back into Jerusalem. That is the author of all the Psalms that we've read through previously, but today we're going to see a new author, a person who was used by God to pen Psalm 73, and his name is Asaph. If you have your Bibles, look at Psalm chapter 73, and you'll notice the first words underneath that are a Psalm of Asaph, and verse 1 says this, truly God is good to Israel. If God is good, say yes. Yeah, God is good, and he's talking about a member of the nation of Israel, one of the followers of God. Oh, God has been good to Israel, even such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Asaph opens up this psalm by saying, God is good, but I almost stopped believing in him. God is good, but I almost abandoned my faith. I was this close. We're going to see where this guy comes from in a few moments, but first let's ask the Lord to bless. Lord, I ask that in these next few moments you'd help me to communicate the truths of this scripture, be a help to my friends, and uh, use the word of God for your glory today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Who is this guy named Asaph? Well, in verse number one, we're introduced to him as the musician. He is a musician from, uh, from Israel. And the Bible tells us several things about him. Number one, we see that he comes from a family of service. If you've ever read through the entire Bible, say yes. Okay, good. So some of you have read through the entire Bible. You've listened to it. That's a great feat. If you've never done that, I encourage you, go through the Bible and uh, make that as a plan. How many of you just started hearing my voice a whole lot better? There's going to be a guy coming out from that door. He just hit a switch. And if he's not, he's going around because he doesn't like to be in front of people. But it's just, good job, Tom. Thank you for fixing it. Feels like we're all, yes. Congratulations, Tom. <laughs> Thank you, Jose, for that uh, appreciation of Tom's service. So, Asaph is mentioned in those books that we read through a lot of times in scriptures. 
You've gotten through those times of the Bible where you start to read, especially in the Old Testament, and it says, and this person begat this person, and this person begat this person, and they died. And this person begat this person, and they died. And many of the names are hard to pronounce and understand. If you've ever read one of those portions of Scripture, say yes. Okay, good. So as you're reading through those portions of scriptures, and sometimes there's long ones, like First Chronicles, the first nine chapters of the book of Chronicles, you're reading through it, and you're like, oh, Lord, Lord, thank you. Thank you for blessing me today. It's like eating your broccoli. <laughs> Actually, worse, it's like cauliflower. It's like eating your cauliflower. And you're like, oh, Lord, thank you for the cauliflower. Is there anything else in here? And, and you have to go read like the book of John just to digest all of that and get it down because it just goes after and after. Well, Asaph is mentioned in those, in those chronologies, those stories where it goes, and this person begat this person, this person begat this person. And in one of those in First Chronicles chapter 25, verses 1 through 7, Asaph is mentioned. A couple of things that the Bible tells us about him. Moreover, David and the captain of the host. Oh, so this is a guy who was working in tandem with David. While David was being the king, and while David was leading armies, and while David was servicing the nation, he commissioned this guy, Asaph, to be his chief musician. This is the guy who led all of his music. He was the band director, if you will, for the time of David's kingship. David wanted to make sure that there was an attention on the arts. He wanted to make sure that the worship of the Lord was being done and doing well so that he commissioned this guy, Asaph, and he works for him as his chief musician. Now, he's going to have two partners that work with him. His name is Heman and another name is Jeduthon, but notice what the Bible tells us about these guys. The Bible tells us this musician, this guy Asaph, that his job would be that they would prophesy with harps, with psalteries, and with cymbals. That's an interesting thing because sometimes when we think of prophecy, we think of prophecy as only coming in a way of, thus saith the Lord. And maybe some guy walking around with a, with a banner or with a sign saying, the world's going to end. The Lord loves you. Repent! Hell awaits! You know, we see stuff like that and we think of, oh, that's prophecy. But notice what the prophecy is demonstrated here in First Chronicles. Here's somebody who prophesies with a harp, with a cymbal, and with a, uh, uh, with a psaltery. Not that he's assaulting people with a psaltery. We'll see what that is in a second. The Bible tells us this, and this is cool too. The Bible says, and the number of the workmen according to their service. The Lord takes the work of these musicians and he props it up. Sometimes we look at certain aspects of work and we say, well, that's good work and that's good work. Well, you know, they have a job. No, the, the Lord takes a person who is working as a prophet with musical instruments and says, let's elevate that and let's call him a workman doing according to his service. He's not chopping down trees. He's not laying cement. He's not throwing stones and killing giants. He's not even preaching a message. What's his job? His job is to be a musician. God uses all sorts of work. Aren't you thankful God uses all sorts of work? I'm so thankful that God uses musicians, aren't you? I'm thankful that God uses construction workers, aren't you? I'm thankful that God uses people with no other talents except they love the Lord, aren't you? I love that God uses all sorts of people. So the Bible says all these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, in the words of God to lift up the horn. So we see a fourth instrument being utilized with cymbals, with psaltery, and with harps. For their service of the house of God, according to the king's order, Asaph, Jedithon, Haman. So the number of them with the brethren that were instructed in the songs of the Lord, even all that were cunning, check this number out, was 200, four score, and eight. So Asaph, this guy who wrote this psalm, Psalm chapter 73, is a guy who's not just a musician, but he's a band leader. And he's not just a band leader, he's a composer of music. He's an author. He's a writer. He's somebody that has uses, uses all of his talents to write music, to sing music, but then he coordinates over 240 people to work with him. Can you imagine what that choir would be like? We have a choir. Next week, we'll have a choir of about 50 or so people that will be up here singing. And I'm looking forward to hearing our choir sing next week. But that's only 50 people. Imagine five times that. 
singing in unison the praise of God. And it is Asaph that unites all of these people together. Not only is he a person who's from a family of service, but he's faithfully skilled. He has a wide breadth of instruments that he uses. The psaltery there is a, is a stationary, we talked about that, it's like a stationary harp that would sit on the ground and would have between eight and 12 strings. The horn would be similar to a trumpet. The, um, the harp would be something similar to a guitar. It's something that people would walk and would walk with and would play with. It was a, a, a transporting instrument. And then the cymbals, they wouldn't be the big ones like this, but they were like this. They would, they would cling them together. And so these are just four of the instruments that were used and were talked about. And it's wonderful because God uses all sorts of people in all different ways to bring glory to his name. God, there is no monopoly on who God uses. God uses people who know how to drive a bus and people who know how to work with masonry. There's God uses some people who are musicians and God uses some people who like sports. God uses people who like Fords and God uses people who drive Chevys. Isn't it amazing? God uses all sorts of people. And yet God takes their skill and like Asaph, he desires to use the skills Whatever skills you have, whatever talents you have, whatever abilities you have, he desires to use your skills and your talents and your abilities for the service of God. And I believe this, just like you can prophesy with a psaltery, I believe that there are men and women that use their, their talent for the Lord. They prophesy with their teaching. They prophesy with their work in cement. They prophesy in their hospitality. They prophesy as they clean a house. They prophesy as they open up a small business. Because because they proclaim the good work of Jesus Christ in whatever skill and whatever ability God is using them. And Asaph is that model. Number three, he is a person who fruitfully spreads his ministry. He didn't keep it to himself. The Bible tells us that this man, he has 12 inspired writings. In the book of Psalms, there are at least a dozen writings that are given to us by Asaph. He has a 400-year legacy of leaders. So even after Asaph dies, 400 years later, people are drawing upon his heritage. He was the music leader when the lost ark was brought into Jerusalem. No, not by Harrison Ford or Indiana Jones, but by King David. When the lost ark is brought back to Jerusalem, it is Asaph that leads the music into that place, and he is the collector of the psalms. It is most probably Asaph who put all 150 psalms together in this book that we call the book of Psalms. His very name, Asaph, means that he is the collector. What a great dude. This is a man of God. This is a person who loves God. This is a person who served the Lord. That has great appreciation for God. He's a good Christian. I would say he's as good of a Christian as any one of us in here today. If you'd agree, say yes. Great guy. And so great that in verse number one, the Bible says, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. So Asaph, the musician, is a wonderful man serving the Lord. Great heritage, wonderful legacy, a heart of service to give to Almighty God using his skills and his abilities. But in verse number two, we see that he is full of angst. In verse number two, the Bible says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone and my steps had well nigh spread. Asaph, in verse number two, is at a place where he's about to say, I'm done with this. I'm giving up on God. I've tried it. I've worked it. And I'm just, I'm just about finished. This is not some mediocre Christian. This is not some person who's just getting into it. This is the writer of 12 chapters of the Bible who's seen the work of God, who's known the work of God, who's prophesied the work of God, and on this instance, he is about ready to abandon it all. How does he get to that place? Notice what draws him to that place. The Bible tells us this. He sees the wicked prosperity. In verse number three, he says, for I was envious of the foolish. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no bands in their death, 
but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. The psalmist is about ready to give up, say, I'm done with this. I am so finished. You want to know why? Because I see the wicked, and the wicked, they are profiting from sin. They're doing that which is wrong, and they're making bank. Now, I don't want to ask you to raise your hand or say it out loud, but have you ever seen somebody make money off of doing that which is wrong? It's disturbing, isn't it? Isn't it disturbing when you see somebody doing wrong and then they're making money off of that? And not only are they profiting from sin, but their profit from the sin is plaguing society. The way that they're taking advantage of other people is not benefiting others. It's not like they're doing wrong so that they can do right later. I I know I'm doing this, but I have a noble intention. Everything that they're doing is plaguing society. And that's exactly what he says. Look at verse number three. He says, for I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They're making money and there was no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not afraid of anything. They're not even afraid of death. They don't think that they're going to get in trouble. They're robbing, they're looting, they're, they're violent. They're doing all, they're, they're lewd and immoral with their behavior. And they're making money off of this. And it's hurting society and it's hurting children and it's breaking up families. And I don't, I don't enjoy it. And it ticks me off so much so that I'm ready to finish this because I see them having pleasure in sin. The Bible tells us in verse number five, for they are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. They're just getting away with all of the bad things that they're doing, and they seem to be enjoying it. Now, this is what's fascinating. God tells us that there is pleasure in sin. If there were no pleasure in sin, nobody would do it. If as soon as you told a lie, you got zapped with a lightning bolt, you'd be like a dog with a shock collar. You ever seen a dog with a shock collar? Dog stops really quick. Why? Because when it barks, gets them right there. If sin had the same consequence, you do something, you lie. That was a lie. I was wrong. If If every time you did something wrong, you got buzzed, you wouldn't do anything wrong. But notice what the Bible says. There is pleasure in sin for a season. You know why people do wrong? Because sometimes it feels good. Sometimes it feels, in fact, sometimes we like to do wrong. We enjoy our sin. The Bible tells us that there has to be a decision made between enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season and sometimes even taking the temporal suffering of doing what is right. Do you remember the story of Moses? Remember Moses, the great man of God who led the children of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land and through the Red Seas, they parted the waters, they brought the Ten Commandments down. You remember Moses, don't you? Moses had everything you could ever want. He didn't live in Caesar's palace, he lived in Pharaoh's palace. And every single luxury and dainty that his time could afford was at his disposal. I'm sure he had servants to take care of any one of his desires. And yet the Bible tells us at the age of 40, he looks around and he decides, I don't want what this world has to offer. I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. I need to be with my people. And the Bible tells us this, that he makes a decision to go and align himself with the children of Israel rather than those people in Pharaoh's palace. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the scripture records that decision in this manner, that Moses, speaking of Moses, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather, or, rather, or than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It's fascinating that here's Moses, a man of God, used mightily. He said, I don't want all that this palace has to offer I choose rather to go make bricks with the Israelites. And he chose the affliction. You say, Pastor Matt, why do you bring that up? It demonstrates that there is pleasure in doing that which is wrong. Because if there wasn't, nobody would do that which is wrong. 
So we make choices, we live a lifestyle, and sometimes those choices and those lifestyle, they will bring a temporal blessing. And Asaph is looking at the wicked people in his life right now. And he's saying, I'm about done. I'm about done serving the Lord because look at what they're doing and look at what they're doing and look at what they're doing. But notice this, the problem wasn't necessarily what the people were doing. The problem wasn't necessarily what God was doing. The problem finds itself in verse number three. Look at verse number three. The Bible says, for I was envious of the foolish. Envy is what we would call a sin, right? Now, don't raise your hand, but have you ever been envious? Have you ever looked at what somebody else has and thought, ooh, I like that. You ever been driving your car and looked at somebody else's car and say, I hate my car? Have you ever walked in somebody else's house and thought, I hate my house? Have you ever looked at somebody else's kids? Never mind. (laughs) Envy is a common condition with human beings, is it not? And envy will reap a great whirlwind of pain. And so in verse number three, here's Asaph, a man of God. And I love the transparency, the authenticity that's that's, uh, right there. He says, I was envious. I was looking at what this wicked person was doing, saying, oh, that looks good. They're not getting away with anything. Or they get away with everything. There's no trouble in their life. This is just a side note, but I want you to see what happens with envy. When envy comes into a person's life, it creates an emotional response, and it takes away the logic. We start to live by emotion. Oh, this feels good. This feels good. This feels good. This will give me a little high. This will give me a buzz. This will make me feel good right now. And so envy starts to create emotional response. Don't we see that in Asaph? Number two, there is a loss of reality. When I start to envy what somebody else has, I I lose my sense of reality. There's, There's no bands even in death. There's a comparison then that arises. Oh, look at what he has. Look at what they have. How come I don't? How can and we never compare ourselves to the person who has less than us. When envy comes in, we never look at the person and be like, oh, they're driving a Datsun B210. We don't look at that. We look at a person who's, who's got more than us, and we compare ourselves. Comparison's a horrible thing. I heard somebody say once, and it helped me, that you should never compare your backstage to somebody's front stage, which means this. Today, this team got up here, and they sang, and they sang, and they did a wonderful job singing, but you don't know what was going on last Wednesday night and the practice that went on, and the energy and the effort that went on to play those musical instruments, and to play the piano, and to blend, and to work with the lights, and to work with the sound. You never compare somebody's backstage to, uh, your backstage to somebody's front stage. Every single one of us were being fought against to come to church today. And I don't know how your fight was, but I know this, that many times going to church, it's a struggle, isn't it? The kids wake up at 6 a.m. every other day except for Sunday. 6 a.m., what are we going to do today, Dad? You're going back to bed. Okay, 10 minutes later. They wait, but for some reason on Sunday, they just don't want to get out of bed. And then everything doesn't work right. Last night, I had to go buy an iron. My daughter Ashlyn said, the irons always break on Sundays, don't they? Yes. For some reason, the iron always breaks on Sunday. It just doesn't go smooth. And don't raise your hand, but have you ever had a fight on the way to church with your spouse or with your family? You ever got in the car and you just, stop, stop, you're braking too fast. You're braking too hard. Did you see that car? You don't know how to drive. I know how to drive. You don't know how to drive. You know, you get in the fight and then you get out of the car and you get out of the car and you carry your Bible because you're a real Christian. You just don't have it on your phone. I have my Bible. It's my real hard copy Bible. Oh, hello, hello. Great week, great week, great week. Praise the Lord, it's a great week. It's so good to us. It's so good. And that fuming's going on during the service. And then when you get back into the car, it's like ding, ding, round two, let's go. <laughs> and what's fascinating, you come into a service like this, or I come into a service like this, and we look at all the other people, and they're dressed so nice, and they're in church, and they're singing, and I'm welcome with open arms. Praise God. Just. And you're fist bumping people. And it's like, man, how come our lives are not as good as theirs? Because their lives stink just like yours does. We're all dealing with the same issues. It was 110 for every single one of us this week. We're all dealing with our issues, but 
whenever envy comes in, we start to compare and say, oh, I wish I was like that. I wish I had their job. I wish I had their family. I wish I had their stuff. And so envious eyes create an emotional response where we lose reality, comparisons arise, and then things become exaggerated. Isn't that fascinating? Everything's good for them. Nothing's good for me. Everybody loves them. Nobody likes me. And so these huge exaggerations that are not valid come through envy. And so the problem has not been the Lord. It's not even been the wicked. The problem comes in Asaph's life because he's full of envy. Can I ask you this? Has envy creeped into your life? Is there a place where you've allowed comparisons to be made that should not be made? Have you allowed an emotional response to dictate your behavior rather than a walk with God? Have you lost reality? Well, I thought life was going to be different. I thought I was going to be able to retire when I was 38. Have you had a loss of reality? Have you allowed the bad things in your life to be exaggerated or the good things in somebody else's life to become exaggerated? Perhaps like Asaph, there needs to be a place of reckoning where you say, I've just been a little envious. I've allowed that green-eyed, green monster to come in and steal that which doesn't belong to him. He's envious of the wicked people, but he notices this, there is big pride issues. When I continue to look at the pride of those who are evil, the Bible says this in verse number six, therefore pride cometh them about like a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt. And they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. They live their lives on full display. We want to celebrate pride. We want to speak highly of pride. We want you to affirm our pride. And almost like a medal being worn by an Olympian, those people who are wicked, the Aesop is looking at say, look at the places they get in the market. Look at how they're celebrated in social media. Look how they're lofted up in the world's eyes. And the Bible tells us their pride is on full display. Not only is their pride on full display, but they are speaking with foolish words. Now this has got to be wrecking Aesop because his whole life is about being a wordsmith. Everything he does taking lyrics, setting them to music, poetry, setting them. His whole life is about words. But the Bible tells us in verse number, verse number eight, they are corrupt and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. They say that oppression is good and they speak loftily. They, they speak in such a manner that is glorifying themselves. They have this foolish dialogue that's on full display. And look what the Bible tells us this, verse 10, therefore his people return hither. They've got a gaggle of people that hang out with them. They are in a group that all day long, them and their homies are kicking it up in their crib. Everything is good for them. They've got friends. They are not secret about their sin. They're just pushing it out there like we should accept it. And even their words are full display in wanton pride. And I want you to see the third thing. I'm tired of it. I am sick and tired of this because look at what I go through in verse number 11. They say, how doth God know? You're serving God. How doth God know? And is there any knowledge in the Most High? They make fun of God, the wicked people that Asaph is speaking of. They make fun of God. They ridicule God. They act as if though he is not there, that they're following some fake religion or going so, through some ritual. He says they just speak and they speak evil. They mock me. Then... then there's now a misunderstanding of standards. Because look at what verse 12 says. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I 
plagued, been plagued and chastened every morning. He said, they get to do all these things, but me, I have to go through all this junk. Look at what I do. I wake up early on my day off, put uncomfortable clothes on so I can listen to a person tell me all the bad things I do in my life, and then he asks me for 10% of my income. What kind of thing is this? This is bonkers world. What do we call it? Torture? No, church. What do, look at what I'm going through. Look at all these things that I'm doing. And all these things that I'm doing and I'm going through. He says this in verse number 14. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. I pay for my kids to go to a Christian school. Do you know how many car payments I could make if I wasn't paying for my kid to go to a Christian school? I've been plagued because of this. I've made these life choices. I give this much money to missionaries around the globe. And what is it getting me? I, I'm driving this beater of a car. I'm wearing these lousy clothes and my spouse hates me and these kids. Let's not even start there. Do you understand? See how weary he is. The last thing that we see, not only, only he misunderstanding the standards, but it becomes a huge matter of stress. He has anxiety in his life because of this. In verse number 14, for all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I shall offend against the generation of thy children. This is what's fascinating. He says, I can't talk to anybody about this. If I talk, if I talk to another Christian about this, they're going to look at me and say, well, 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 well. You just need to trust the Lord and be more like me. Yeah, thanks. And the people who I want to go get counsel from, the people who are supposed to be friendly to me, the people who are supposed to help navigate me through these thoughts, these feelings, these difficult desires that, I, that I'm encumbered with right now, I can't even talk because if I were to talk to somebody else, if I say, I will speak thus, I'm going to talk about this to somebody. Behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. If I share this with somebody, they're going to think that I've lost my mind, my marbles. They'll kick me out of the church. They'll never let me sing another song. They'll never let me. So I'll lose my job. I'll lose my stature. I'll lose my position. So I'm just sitting here stuck and struggling with all of this, and it's because of these wicked people. It's because of what's happening in my life, and I'm tired of it. I've become a weary, weary psalmist. Now, if that happens to Asaph, you've dealt with that. And if you haven't dealt with that, you will deal with it. Because this guy is a Christian's Christian. This guy is writing music about God. This guy is serving the Lord. And yet at this juncture, when you read the first 15 verses, he's ready to give up on God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but have you ever been envious of the wicked? You ever thought, how come they get their name on a building and I can't even get my name on the mortgage? How come that continues to go on and we see online clips and video and news stories and scandal? How come that goes on and I'm just here serving the Lord? Have you ever felt like you can't talk to anybody? Because you'll get kicked out of church. You'll be removed from your position. Everybody's going to say something bad about you. And it's just going to be a nightmare. So you're stuck. That's exactly where Asaph is. And if you've never been there, you will be there someday. Because that's exactly where Asaph is. He's not, he hasn't gone into great avarice. He hasn't denied the faith. He's considering it. He hasn't abandoned his family and everything, considering it. And it started with that thing of envy. So how does Asaph overcome that? He has an appreciation for the master. And it sounds so trite. And it's almost like, well, of course, you're going to talk about that, but what's the real answer? Here's the real answer. <laughs> From time to time, people will come into my office and be like, so share with me how I do this. And this is the answer. There's no magic formula. There's not, if you up your tithing to 15%, then it's going to be okay. This is, the, this is the magic formula. Whenever you're going through that depression, 
when you're going through that anxiety and you feel like nobody cares, this is God using his person to share with us how to get through that difficult place of navigation. This is what God says Asaph does. Look at verse number 16. When I thought to know all of this, it was too painful for me. I can't go through this any longer. So verse number 17 says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, what we see there is we see a man who has a personal relationship with God. It's one thing to have a traditional or a cultural relationship, isn't it? I grew up going to church, knew about God, knew about this. But there comes a place where that traditional has to be transformative. And rather than being a culture of Christianity, you must have a relationship with God on your own. For me, I I was saved when I was six years old. When I was 13, I reaffirmed that decision to know Christ as my Savior. When I was 17, I gave my life to the Lord and said, Lord, you can have my life in whatever way you want. And so there's several times in my life where I say, okay, God is my God. God is my God. I'll just be honest with you. Sometimes that's difficult. When your dad's a pastor and you grow up and your first memories, your first memories are going to church and hearing stories about the Bible, there's a, there's a place where it's easy to fall into traditional Christianity or a cultural Christianity. And for me, that's a struggle in my life to get into the pattern and the behaviors of this is the way it's always supposed to be done and it's, it's the expectation of your life. Some of you come from different places. Some of you never heard about Jesus until you walked into this building. I got a note the other day from a young girl who's 11 years old, said, thank you for bringing us to this church. This is where we heard about Jesus. Our family is completely different because we know about Jesus now. It's awesome, right? So her family's different. They heard about Jesus in this place. So there's going to be a different challenge in their life to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ than mine is. But the point is this. All of us have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We have a commonality with Jesus, but all of us must have an individual relationship with Jesus. I'm not going to go to heaven because I'm a Tice or a pastor's kid or because I'm a Baptist or because I'm a pastor. Do you know that there will be people who proclaim Jesus Christ who will go to hell? In Matthew chapter 7, there's a group of people that stand before God and they say, in thy name we have done many wonderful works and in thy name we have cast out demons. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Not I knew you at one time and you lost it. No, I never knew you. Because it's not about a culture, it's not about a tradition. It comes through a relationship with Christ. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Can you look back at a time when you saw the need of your salvation and you recognized the supply of Jesus' work for your salvation on the cross and you made that transaction, you said, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. Then and then only brings a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't mold into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't melt into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He describes it as being born again in John chapter 3. So when were you born again? Asaph has a relationship, not because he's a psalmist, not because he can play the harp, not because he knows David. He has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's displayed in a daily walk with God. There is a walk between him and God. And that daily walk has put disciplines inside of his life. Notice the discipline that is transformative in verse number 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Let me just say this. I applaud you for being in church today. For whatever reason you're here, you put a discipline of your life to go into a place for an hour, hour and a half, and learn about the things of God. That's a a noble tactic. That's a noble deed. Why? You need discipline in your life. And these practices of saying, okay, I've got to have a reset button in my life. Asaph says, well, I'm ready to give up. But for whatever reason, whether it was a daily walk with God or it was a weekly time where he goes into the sanctuary and he says, this is my reset button. He has a daily place to reset his life. Do you have disciplines in your life that help you reset and reconnect with God? It's so important. 
It's so important because all week long you were being told about Hunter Biden and all week long you were being told about the scandal over here. You were being told about this crisis and global warming and this opportunity and this plague and this scandal. And sometimes you just need to get rid of all of that and say, I need to hear about Jesus. Because our focus gets so delineated in all these things that are right here, and we lose our opportunity to start looking and saying, well, look at what they're doing, and look at what they're doing, and look at what they're doing, and I don't have a sphere. How come I don't get a sphere? And we look at what all the world has to offer, and we're empty. And so God gives us these opportunities to reset and discipline our lives. That's why we encourage people, don't just take our word for what the Bible says. You need to study the Bible. You need to go to church. You need, you need to go to a connection class. You, why, why do I need to go to a connection class? Because there's not perfect people there, but there's people who are studying the Bible. You need this book in your life. Because when he sets that reset button, he's no longer coasting, he's no longer sailing, the Bible tells us God starts to change his perspective. And that person of envy, look at the end of verse number 17, says, then I understand their end. The emotions go away, getting wrapped up in that tension or in that strife or in that envy. That goes away, and I realize, oh, I realize their end. It's not all rainbows, ponies, and flowers. It's not all filtered social media posts. There's a real end. We're playing with real life. I have a personal relationship with God, and so rather than being in a place of envy, my life is changed to a place of pity. Look at verse number 21. Then my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast before thee. The person who was envying now starts to look and say, oh, that's not the life that I want. Because I can think about stories in the past, and I can rehearse tales of those who have done before those wicked things and lived in a verse relationship with God. I don't want to be there. And I pity them. I pity them. And my ignorance is turned into awareness. Check. How's that happen? Because I went into the sanctuary. I went into the sanctuary. That discipline of going into the sanctuary changes my envy into empathy. It changes my ignorance into awareness. And then I start to have a proper respect. Look at the proper respect in verse number 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me with thy right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me unto glory. Notice what happens. He understands this, that God supports my health. In verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me with my right hand. You're the one who's in charge of my health. Verse number 24, you're the one who guides my steps. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me into glory. Not only that, but you provide me with emotional care. I don't need a psychiatrist. I don't need these pills. I don't need to be able to just emotionally vomit on somebody. Why? Because God takes care of my anxiety. God takes care of my depression. I know somebody that's bigger than any PhD out there. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth, and he cares for my soul. The Bible says this, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon the earth that I desire, what? Beside thee, because God provides emotional care. Not only does he provide emotional care, but God desires my company. Look at verse number 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. Do you know there's a whole lot of people that don't care if you call them? There's a whole lot of people that if you were to call them, they would see your number and they would send it straight to voicemail. Some of you send me straight to voicemail. <laughs> but God never ignores this call. God never sends me to voicemail. God desires to have a relationship with me. Notice he says, but it is good for me to do what? To get saved again? No, but to draw near to God. I can be saved and I can be away from God. And there's where Asaph is in his envy and in his strife. He's looking with eyes of envy rather than eyes of uh, empathy. And he says, oh, I need to be near to God. God desires my company. 
And then he says in verse number 28, I have put my trust in the Lord that I might declare all thy works. God supports my health. God guides my steps. God provides my emotional care. God desires my company. And God must be shared. And it's so important that we tell you today that you need to tell people about Jesus. This world needs Jesus. We don't need another uh, uh, dude driving a BMW. We got plenty of those. We don't need another social media influencer. We don't need, an, this world doesn't need a whole lot of folks going around doing a whole lot of activities. But what this world does need is Jesus, and it's our responsibility to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. In 1998, I was a junior at college, and I had been there for two and a half years. My brother had come to college with us. And as my roommate now, being in college, I didn't have a car. The first year, if I wanted to go to Walmart, if I wanted to go to Taco Bell, if I wanted to go to the beach, you have to hitch a ride with somebody. It's a horrible thing. Then your brother comes. You have to hitch a ride for yourself and a brother. And nobody wanted to be with Josh. So it was just a very difficult thing <laughs> to bring him along every place we went, everything we do. And so Josh and I together, in October, we started praying, Lord, would you give us a car? Lord, please give us a car. Lord, give us a car. Would you please give us a car? And somebody called my dad and uh, gave my dad a 1994, this is 1998, gave my dad a 1994 Cadillac Sedan DeVille. My dad called me up and said, you got a car. He said, somebody just gave me a Cadillac. I said, you're giving us a Cadillac? He said, no, you're getting the minivan. And so my, dad <laughs> so my dad drove the minivan out to Florida where we were in college. And I got to tell you, we loved having that minivan. My brother and I could drive in that minivan. My brother and I and five other friends could drive to Taco Bell. My brother and I and 12 other college students could drive all the way down to the beach. Not legally, but we could do it. The minivan was a great vehicle for us. And I drove that minivan for the next two years. When I graduated, Josh got the minivan, and he was the caretaker of the minivan. And for the next two years, he drove it. Then Charity went to college. And for the next two years, uh, Charity and Josh, they shared that minivan. And then when Charity graduated, uh, Faith went to college, and Faith took that minivan, and she drove that minivan. When Hope graduated from college, Hope took that minivan, and Hope drove that minivan. That minivan that was uh, uh, coming off the lines and 1991 serviced Tyst families for 22 years and 300,000 miles. It was just a great minivan. But I got to tell you, when I graduated from college, I didn't want to drive a minivan because I'm cool. And I said, I'm not going to drive a minivan. So when it came time for me to buy my first car, the first car that I bought after Ashland, uh, somebody had given me a car. We had a small little Ford Escort station wagon that wasn't cool, but it was a little bit better than a minivan. But when it came by to buy my first car, I bought my favorite car I ever had was a 1999 Ford Explorer Eddie Bauer edition. And I bought this in 2004, and I just thought it was the coolest car. It was all leather interior. It had a whole bunch of buttons. It had a six CD changer. I mean, that's how rich it was. It was just a great car. We bought it from a lady who lived over in Utah, and she was selling it on the corner at, at uh, Flamingo and Rainbow, and she was asking 13000 I offered her ten, and she took it. And we drove that car. We got that car. We drove it for 157,000 miles. I remember I gave, sold it for 200, or I sold it at 207,000 miles. Just a great car. But the reason we sold that car is because we got our fourth kid. And having the fourth kid meant that they couldn't sit. There was no third row seating. And Brianna started talking to me about a minivan. <laughs> and for years, I'd been fighting this thing. For about 10 years, since we had our first baby, she was like, you know, a minivan's not bad. I'm like, no, we don't want a minivan. Well, you could get a minivan. We could do this with it. No, we don't want a minivan. And I said, why don't we get one of those crossovers? And so they started making these crossovers where they took an SUV and a minivan and trying to keep some dignity and testosterone in the male uh, United States citizenry. They tried to put these things together. And I said, let's buy a crossover. So we did, and we went and spent too much money on a crossover. And I got this car, and we drove it for 18 months, and the transmission went out. And the transmission was going to cost like $4,000 
on this vehicle. And I remember thinking, oh. And, and for the first time, I financed a new vehicle. And you know what I financed? A minivan. <laughs> and I had to roll in. Because of the debt, I had to roll in $3,000 into the minivan, and I got that minivan. And I remember the first time getting in that minivan thinking, well, here I am <laughs> with my four kids in a minivan. And I got to tell you something. It was incredible. The difference in driving a minivan and any other vehicle is the difference between first class and coach. You can go on a trip on a minivan, you can put kids in the third row, you forget they're there. <laughs> you put a Disney cartoon in there, you don't even have to hear from a child for two hours. It's beautiful. You can, you can walk them back there, you're driving, you don't even talk to them. It's just a wonderful, I'm telling you, it's a wonderful experience. A few years ago, my brother-in-law, he's a firefighter in North Las Vegas, he got a minivan. And we were sitting outside talking about our minivans. He's like, look at me, I'm my minivan. My, and my brother-in-law, who's a car guy, is like, you guys talking about your minivans? Trying to man-shame us. But we don't care. Because we love the minivan. You know, there's an experience that happens when you come to know Christ and you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's transformative. And there's a whole world out there that would even mock, make fun, dismiss, and berate the life of a believer. And sometimes we can become envious of them, can't we? Can't we? Yeah, it becomes envious of this, but I'll tell you this. What rides with me in that minivan is priceless. And a relationship with Jesus Christ surpasses even that. And in a world that loves to steal our attention away and make us envious of that which only brings death, harm, and destruction, God offers salvation. He offers purpose. He offers peace. He gives strength. He gives healing. He gives a reason to live. He gives wisdom. He gives emotional support because he can do that which only God can do, and he wants to do that in your life. Do you know him? Was there a time in your life when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Was there a time in your life when you said, I'm going to hell because I'm a sinner, so I need Jesus, and you made that transaction with him? Christian, have you allowed the affairs of this world to steal your attention rather than your focus on Jesus? God desires to use us and demonstrate to the world, as it says here, I have put my trust in the Lord that I might declare all thy works. This world needs Jesus. And you, are the, you and I are the ones who are supposed to declare his works. May we go forward in that strength and that courage even this week. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to apply it to our lives and use its truths for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. We hope that message was an encouragement to your heart. Now for weekly updates and for information about Liberty Baptist Church, be sure to follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at LBC of Las Vegas. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, God bless.